Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi everyone and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. My name is Fiona Sutherland and I am joining you today from Southeast Australia, Wurundjeri country. Before we get started and into my amazing conversation with Amy Severson, I wanted to pay my respects and to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people of the many traditional lands as First Nations peoples, traditional owners and the traditional custodians of Australia. I wanted to acknowledge the wisdom of elders, both past, present and emerging, and pay my respect to the communities of today. I recognise that First Nations peoples of Australia have an ongoing and deep-seated connection to land and culture, and I truly value their unique contribution to both me, us, and the wider society. Sovereignty has never been ceded, and Australia always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. In this episode, Amy makes some pretty exciting announcements, which might just involve a book and maybe even a partnership with the incredible Sumner Brooks from EDRD Pro. Take a listen to how she describes intuitive eating for kids and families. I'm incredibly inspired and can't wait to read it. We also talk about how Amy found her voice, which, well, so interesting. It includes crossing paths with body, body positive leading advocate Lindo Bacon, one of my very favourite humans in this world. Amy talks about every dietitian's responsibility when working with human beings. We talk about the weaponising of words and how important language is and how dietitians are so much more than quote-unquote food managers. We dive right into what trauma-informed care really is and what it isn't and how to have thoughtful and empathic conversations with fat and larger-bodied clients. We also talk about finding one's voice and also balancing that out with self-care when engaging with and on social media. I absolutely loved this discussion with Amy. It was several months ago now, so you might notice it's a bit of a different conversation than we might have already. Well, this is how podcast recordings sometimes do go. I wanted to share a little bit about Amy before we get into our main conversation. So Amy's a registered dietitian nutritionist in private practice in Bellingham, Washington, and has also worked with students at Western Washington University. Amy's work with individuals focuses on repairing relationships with food and body for all her clients. Amy found this work after recovering herself from an eating disorder and holds a bachelor's degree in food and nutrition from Montana State University. She's also currently completing her master's of professional practice from Iowa State University. She's a dietitian registered in the state of Washington and has received training under the intuitive eating pros Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli. She's currently undergoing certification at, as, as a body trust provider with our friends Dana Sturtevant and Hilary Canavy, 
thoroughly recommend uh, Body Trust to anybody who's looking to really elevate skills, insight and self-awareness around working with clients and, and really just digging into our own work. Amy has written articles for Healthline Greatest and the Scientific American blog. And you can find her over on Instagram. All, all the references and everywhere where you can find Amy can be found in the show notes. But if you are looking for somebody who has an inspiring kind of voice on social media, then you can go no further than Amy. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. And look forward to looping back and hopefully getting together in person with some of you at some point in time. I mean, 2020 needs to be the hashtag WTF, that's for sure. If you're looking for any further uh, information about uh, practice or training or other podcasts, supervision, you can find that on the Mindful Dietitian website, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. You can also find previous episodes of the podcast over there while you're hunting around and looking for things and yeah, all kinds of upcoming events. Of course, these days we're really online more than live, which is actually a really incredible opportunity really to get together as a worldwide international community rather than whoever has the, the privilege and the access to be able to travel to local events. So it's, it's wonderfully exciting really to be, to be able to host some online events in 2020 and then moving into one as well. So keep your eye out for what's happening on the Mindful Dietitian website. Thank you so much and I really hope you enjoy this episode as I'm speaking with Amy Severson. Hey Amy and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's so, so, so fantastic to connect with you. Hi Fiona, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on here and talking to you. Yeah, well no doubt we're going to get into some a wonderful go deep quick conversations I, <laughs> I imagine if the type of topics that we tend to get into in our community are any indication of that um, but first of all I wanted to ask you a little bit about you know what uh, what you're up to at the moment what is um, not only life like for you but um, you know what tell us a little bit about what you're up to in terms of your work absolutely uh, that's a big question we are currently in the middle of a pandemic, so life is a interesting mix of things. Um, I've moved dog. <laughs> I'm entirely um, online and am, come on, buddy, stop barking, and am working exclusively from home, which is an interesting thing with a small child. And I'm, well, I'm in my final semester of grad school, which is really exciting. Um, summer program and hopefully will be done easily and will not completely overwhelm me with everything else I'm doing because I am also um, finishing up my certification to be a body trust provider and uh, yeah and it's really exciting and I Sumner Brooks and I just announced like a week ago that we are writing a book for intuitive eating for kids and we are so excited about it um, we've been sitting on our hands about talking about it with anybody for a while so now we can finally talk about it and announce it and it's super exciting so I've got a lot of stuff going on but uh it's good it's all good stuff wow that is amazingly exciting stuff mm -hmm. pretty excited <laughs> that is awesome so do you mind if I pry just a little and ask about the the evolution of your and Sumner's 
project because this is a, a space that is much, much needed. So intuitive eating for kids. Um, so I'm assuming that is the book geared towards parents and adults? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how did that all come about? That is just, oh my gosh, so needed. Yeah. It's, I'm really excited about it. I, this was not something that was on my radar uh, originally. It was on Sumner's radar and she had been working with Elise Resch. Um, Alicia, Elise saw the need for this book and wasn't personally interested in writing it. Didn't want to undertake this <laughs> momentous task and with her other many, many projects. Um, so she reached out to Sumner and Sumner, um, was really interested in it. And then Sumner realized that she needed somebody else to help and she reached out to me. So we started this project, um, sometime in the fall, um, you don't remember when, and it started out as this pretty vague thing. Like we need this, we need this thing. We kind of see it, you know, touching on all these social justice pieces as well including body trust and Sumner is also um, training to be a body trust provider right now. So we get to include a lot of that in the work that we do. And we just saw this huge space and it's really, um, as we've written our proposal and written our sample chapters and stuff and started really writing the chapters, it's just really grown and we see all these things that we have to include and we really want to include and we want it to be this very well, as inclusive as we can make it and as, as, as um, social justice oriented as we can make it and really making the point that it's not about the food. Like it's not about, you know, how to, this isn't a book about how to get your kids to eat broccoli. It's a book about how to be okay if your kids never eat broccoli and, you know, we can still, how we can love them and show them how much we love them no matter what their body looks like. And that's the, the thing we want to impart is we're not going to try and healthify your kids. We are wanting to help you and them have healthy relationships with food and their bodies and everyone else's bodies. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing that there will be a lot of parents uh, turning to a resource like this as a result of experiencing their own difficulties and their own struggles um, with their food, eating and body relationships. So what an incredible um, resource to be able to break some of those intergenerational cycles. Yeah, hopefully we are really hoping that this gets to be, you know, big and important because we are pouring our kind of hearts and souls into it. And um, in the middle of a pandemic, don't try to write a book in the middle of a pandemic. That's just my, Amy's my tip. advice for any writer. <laughs> yeah. It feels like it should go without saying, but just in case you really, really get the urge. <laughs> don't, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, just in case you missed the memo. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to focus on, you know, vacuuming your floor sometimes. Don't try to write a book. <laughs> Absolutely. Keep it simple, folks. <laughs> so I'm interested in what you were saying about being health at every size and social justice oriented in the book. So what are the kinds of things that you and Sumner are keeping in mind when it comes to making sure that it's infused with um, inclusivity? Mm -hmm. We, I mean, Sumner and I each have our own, we have a few overlapping privileges and we each have our own privileges. And um, one of them is we're both dietitians and we also are both, you know, relatively financially secure at this point in life. Um, 
and we're also both white. So we have definitely have those privileges that contribute to our experience. Um, and we wanna be very aware that we can't speak for people who have these experiences that we don't have. And so we're doing our work to consult with others who have those experiences and can do that. We also really want to make sure that we can touch on, you know, what it's like to be a, like a queer kid growing up in a world where, you know, it's already hard enough to be queer in a heteronormative society and, you know, how that can impact how you need to fit in and, you know, that which can impact your body image, which can impact your food and all of this stuff together. And we also want to make sure it's, um, accessible to those who, who don't have a lot of money. Like this isn't, like I said, it's not how to get your kids to eat broccoli. It's, it's also how many resources do you have access to and how can you use those resources to promote the healthiest relationship to your child's body with your child's body that you possibly can. And really just validating a lot of those experiences and trying to make it, I don't know, accessible as we can, as much as accessible as we can to all these spaces, which is hard. And we acknowledge we're going to do some, some things not correctly. Um, but we don't want it to be another book of how to, you know, buy organic vegetables for your kids and they'll like it. No, it's not what this is. Mm -hmm. And also not the point. Not the point, even a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what, on behalf of, of everybody who will be reading um, this amazing resource, we are so excited for you because it's, um, yeah, as I said, it's, it's much, much needed and it's certainly filling, I feel like a, a gap, a, a gap between, um, between gaps, kind of between parenting and, and social justice and then also, um, feeding and sometimes the angst that can come with feeding your kids and um and then healing of course our food eating and body relationships in a way that uh i wonder if do you know okay hang on let me just park the bus just here for a second because one thing that i've always really liked about ellen satter's work is that she did work with a lot of people from a lot of different socioeconomic backgrounds and in a lot of different conditions um and uh so she understood what it would be like to need to feed your kid if you don't have the economic resources then it sounds like this book is going to be perhaps drawing on some of those and wanting to keep that kind of stuff intact whilst also having the social justice strong absolutely. strong social which is missing from Sada's work absolutely we are definitely pulling um, and referencing because Ellen Satter is the like original guru of a lot of like child feeding cues. Um, and we're, we're taking some of that and referencing her while also taking it and growing it into this bigger, bigger thing. Yes. Like you said, the social justice is really missing. The body acceptance is really missing. And we feel, and, and both of us feel just at, at least as parents, like not even as dietitians, but as parents, humans um how important it is to, to have those acceptance that acceptance that that um unconditional love for your child and they know it because we all we all have that like we all you know unconditionally love our kids and we know that 
And when we put so much value on their bodies, they might not know that. And so that's something we are trying to really drive home. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be, um, I think, uh, I wonder if for parents, even if they, I wonder if for parents, you know, integrating it into their own lives is going to be incredibly healing. Mm-hmm. We, are, mm. we even have a focus on, um, a small focus. It's, it's not the main focus of the book because that's why intuitive eating exists and all these other things exist, but we recognize the importance of mirroring and yes, the importance of, you know, we can't heal our, we can't heal someone else's relationship with food without healing our own first. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talk a lot about that and really hold space for imperfect parenting and imperfection at all, because like, it's a thing and no one's perfect. And mm-hmm. we need to have space for that. So. And we all also, uh, whether we are, whether we self-identify as as parents or not, those of us who have young people in our lives, um, or who have been young people ourselves, and and happen to have you know emerged into adolescence and and as miracles would have it, some of us actually emerge into adulthood. That um, you know doing that inner child work too, being able to heal our own child. What did we need to hear as children? I imagine will be incredibly healing. Absolutely. We are um, also utilizing Eric Erickson's work, which is kind of what you're referencing there, which is that inner, inner child and self-parenting and the stages of development that Eric are, are using with you. So we're drawing from a lot of different spaces. Love it. Men, and it's really exciting. It's going to be really cool. Mm. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, think, I think you can be pretty sure that even, even an imperfect book, whatever, whatever perfect is, right? All you would need to do is just talk to Elise and say, and she would tell you, <laughs> um, uh, you know, edition one, yeah. not, not even close. <laughs> edition two, getting closer. Edition three, getting closer again. Edition four, getting closer. I mean, even Evelyn and Elise would say the fourth edition is not even going to be perfect. It's just, it cannot be. That's, I think, the number one piece of advice we've gotten from anybody who's ever written a book, but especially Elise and Evelyn, is at some point you have to let go of the draft. Absolutely. You have to stop re-editing it or rewriting it because it's not going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And we've uh, come up against that a little bit in our own practice of this, I think. <laughs> really? I would not have guessed that. <laughs> you know, I think it's – I think also knowing Sumner well and then getting to know you, the two of you really – seek to serve our community and I can imagine that there would be a a sense of I want to serve my community the people that have supported me and the people that have been my teachers I really want to do them a service by putting something out into the world which honors the work that I've done as well absolutely and you will be doing everybody so proud by doing this incredible labor really I mean it's amazing Amy it really is Thank you. I'm really excited and I am shocked that it happened so quickly. And so it just happened. <laughs> that is, you know, it's super, super, super cool. It's awesome. So you're well regarded as somebody who uses your voice quite widely in across different platforms, especially in social media. So I'm really curious to ask you a little bit more about how you found your voice. And I don't, I, I don't mean that there is one voice. There is lots of different voices. I, I, I re, what I really love about the way that you communicate is that um, 
you are able to find this sense of compassion and kindness uh, as well as a very no bullshit type of way of communicating. You know, you hold your ground really beautifully, which I think shows incredible leadership and, and wisdom really. So I'm, I'm curious to understand a little bit more about the evolution of how you found this kind of place, place for yourself. Well, first of all, thank you. That means a lot to hear that from you. And I definitely feel like evolution is the correct word. And I definitely feel like I'm still in that evolution. I'm still um, finding out how I want to, even if it's just take the different intersections of my life and what things are worthy of, of sharing and what things are worthy of um, or important or safe for me to, to bring to the table. And um, I'm learning more and more about that almost daily at this point, I think. And it's um, an interesting journey. And yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. I think one of the biggest, um, most helpful things I, I, I did I got was lucky enough to experience, I should say, um, when I first really started going on social media, because I've really only been super active on it for the past little over a year, I think. And so I just kind of really started to dig into it. And this was roughly a year ago. Um, I think I'm about a year out from my initiation into body trust. And this was on my way to body trust, actually. Um, I went to a conference with Lindo Bacon in somewhere south of Seattle. And I was going to Portland the next day to start my body trust training. And Linda was also going to Portland the next day to give a talk at, at the body trust conference. And they needed a ride from Chehalis, which is where we were, to Portland. And uh, they found out through some mutual friends that I was making that trek that day and asked me for a ride. I got an email from them and they asked me for a ride. And oh my God, the email had, that everyone dreams of. I had to read it like four or five times. <laughs> what, what are they asking me? What's happening in this, in this email? <laughs> and um, it was a, it was a, I was so nervous for this. I vacuumed my car like four times because I was a child. <laughs> um, pretty sure they didn't care at all, but I was, <clears throat> I was nervous. Um, and I, yeah, had this like 90 minute car trip with Lindo. And one of the questions, like they just asked a lot about me and were um, really curious about like what I saw my role being. And um, they were really supportive and really great. And one of the questions they asked me was how I felt about my, like my voice and what it, what it was. And we were talking about how few well, fat dietitians there are in the world and the ones that are really, really willing to call people on their bullshit. And that was where I kind of realized that I like, I wanted to be, and like my, I was kind of floating around that idea. Like I really wanted to be that person. I really wanted to identify myself in the body that I live in. And Linda was, she said, or they said something like, yeah, there aren't very many people who do that and you should you should absolutely do that. And it like really stuck with me that that little bit really stuck with me. And the questions that they asked along the lines of like, how would I handle criticism that came my way? And um, she talked about how other people have had the types of criticism they've had. And um, it was just a very 
transformative car ride. And um, it was really cool. So that kind of kicked off a lot of things for me. And I started to like change how I felt about social media after that, including just felt more empowered in it and Mm -hmm. more willing to talk about it. And then the more positive feedback I got, the more willing I was to do it. And, and lately the past few months in particular, I've really been seeing a space for um, sharing my own story more and that's kind of the direction I'm going to be heading to is talking more about myself and how I fit in this, this world and why I'm here and why I do the things that I do. And yeah, it's a, an evolution for sure. <laughs> I love that. Well, we really appreciate you. We really appreciate you um, showing up as you are yeah. because the, uh, you know, we, we do need um, to see more dietitians uh, visibly being able to show up just as they are in terms of race and culture and size and religion and gender and however however people do show up to broaden the perspective of what a diet not not what a dietitian does but what a ty- dietitian almost is or mm-hmm. it's 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 not looks like it's more is beyond being these uh, kind of quote unquote managers of people's food, eating and bodies, which is just so, so messed up in so many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I stepped into a comment thread on a Facebook, in a Facebook group the other day. Oh, um, excellent. Always a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, I wasn't going to go there, but then I realized I needed to go there because there was a bunch of, it was, eating disorder professionals that were all saying things like restriction doesn't mean restriction. You know, a diet doesn't necessarily mean that someone's disordered and really from this place of like, to me, a diet means the way that you eat in a day. I'm like, well, that's like technically oh, a definition of it, but like it's a diet. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I said was, um, if you can hear the word restriction or be told restriction, like in the terms of like you have an allergy and you can't have this food anymore um or a diet as in the regimen in which you eat you know and you don't feel those deeply in that like restriction as we know as we actually know it diet as we actually know it then that's a privilege that you have not had those words used at you in that kind of way and your clients likely have had them used at you in that at them in that way And so we can't just flippantly throw those words around because they don't mean the same to us, like restriction and a diet. And like, this is too much. I'm using a lot of air quotes here. (laughs) This is too much. Um, We can't, we can't use those, those phrases. We can't say that we can't include, I've actually had multiple clients in the past couple of weeks say this to me, that they will actively avoid um, choosing a dietitian or a therapist if they also talk about weight loss on their website. Yes. Because we can't, we can't include these. Like we can't, we can't mix the two and hope that we're not going to do somebody harm. And got fed up with that one because it is a privilege to not have have had those word, those words directed at you in a like accusatory way, you mm-hmm. know, or another word I'm going for here, but I can't think of it. Like used in medical settings as something that you're supposed to do, but you're not. And um, it shows sometimes for people, for sure. 
Yeah, you're, you're absolutely spot on. You know, that I guess the weaponizing of words is something that if you have the, been the recipient of that, of that weapon, then it's harmful. And if the, if it looks like a weapon, but it's, a, I don't know, a tube of hand cream, then that has not been used against you. Mm-hmm. And that, really matters i'm a massive believer that the words that we use really really matter because of the intention impact thing right it's my intention is to express um a certain concept or something in the way that i know but if that harms people then that's actually what matters my intention doesn't matter a shit if it hurts people absolutely absolutely and i Think that we miss that a lot as dietitians. I feel like our training really doesn't go over this stuff at all. We're just like, this is how you're supposed to manage food, and end of story. Like you said, the managers of people's food, and it's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that, and especially if we want to do this work like, at all. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you you say this work. You know, the work of healing i guess in in some ways or the or the the work of connection um and you know there's there's a part of me that that can't help but think that that is what dietetics is in a way regardless of whether you're kind of working in kind of acute icu or oncology or you know private practice gut stuff you know, when we're using something as precious as food as a vehicle to be able to promote healing and reconnection mm-hmm. and, you know, um, yeah, I suppose those two words are all we need to use perhaps, um, that when we're coming at it from a place of a managerial position, it just enacts those power structures again, doesn't it? Like with the weather managers and, and therefore how does that position the people that we're working with? It's kind of, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here. I completely agree. And I think a way to, to think about that is because I completely agree that it is that like every dietitian really has that responsibility, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And if that's not a core structure of our belief systems of, of ourselves as professionals or, um, I don't know, our, our treatment modalities, you know, our education that we get, it needs to be, you know, it needs to be the truth that we do have, we're handling this precious resource and people will take, because we have those letters behind our names, um, especially if you live in a really privileged body, people will take your word for it. And you can do a lot of harm without really meaning to. Mm-hmm. And because I also don't believe that any of us really intend to do harm. Like, no, we're not a group of evil people who a few of us got out. Like, it's not what we are. And if we don't want to do harm, if we really want to help and, like you said, reconnect, help people reconnect with these things, then I feel we need to recenter. You know, we need to, to realign our own. Um, belief of what we are in the in the process because I think it's also really easy to think of ourselves as like one-offs like I help with the food and then I move on like thinking of in the hospital setting like in a acute setting it's really easy to be like I'm helping them through this particular time in their life and then done 
And like maybe you are, maybe you see that patient one time, but you can also really impact the way that patient sees food or their, their bodies or dietitians. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's incredibly important. And I know that for many of us, and I include you in the broader us, you know, where, especially through the vehicle of social media, we're aiming to really communicate a lot of these ideas to folks who um, have been through the traditional training. Can I just say, I, I will, I will absolutely say that it's very different. I trained 20 years ago. There was no counseling skills component at all. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, there was probably a little, I started teaching into the dietetics courses about 10 years ago, and there started to be a real uh, acceleration of mm-hmm. more client-centered work through the lens of counseling, I mean, mm-hmm. not necessarily through actual, you know, I mean, let's say client-centered practice in inverted commas, shall we, in mm-hmm. air quotes. Um but now there is, there's a real, there's a much deeper interest in counselling skills. But the one thing I've noticed, which a lot of us are really trying to do, is to do a little bit more of that deeper work. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not, so counselling skills is not just listening. That's incredibly important. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just about that, though. It's about understanding the way that we are positioned and the way that that then positions our clients and the people who we are trying to serve. We're not bad people, as you said, Mm -hmm. but if we don't understand the way that positioning works in the broader culture and the way people have experienced healthcare systems, then we're missing a massive piece of piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. Absolutely. And really just bringing in the fact that we can make a difference just by, like you said, listening and hearing and really, like these are the things that can just, if we're not really paying attention, can go right over our heads and we just will miss it entirely. And it is, we have the opportunity to be, to be so much more than just like, here's a meal plan, I hope you eat it. It's not about just the food that they're eating now or the way they will eat for the next month. It really is how they feel about the food they're eating, how they feel about their bodies and like, even the people who, you know, focus still on weight loss, how can we shift away from that and to include, obviously I want to shift away from that, but how can we shift away from that to include why do people want to lose weight? Like, what is that going to serve? How is that going to serve you? Because I feel like that's a question that comes up a lot, especially from folks who are traditionally trained and which is most of us at this point. And it's, well, what do you do? Because we're taught um, at least here, I'm not sure if you have this this training or this this phrase, but it's the meet clients where they're at, meet them where they're at. And it's always, well, they're at where they want to lose weight. And like, if they've come to me, I've heard this from so many people, if they come to me and they want to lose weight, what do I do with that? How do I, how do I help with that? And maybe how we help with that is not to, not to help them lose weight somehow, in some magical way that probably doesn't really exist but understand to help them understand why they want to, what they're hoping to gain out of that experience and how they can gain it in their life right now without changing, without having to put that on their bodies. And that's just a huge thing that we can do. And not everyone realizes that's something that is 100% within our scope to do. Yeah. 
my goodness, these conversations are incredibly important, incredibly important because like you said, people who are coming to us with a specific goal in mind or a specific idea of why they are seeking our support um, often haven't been, haven't been exposed or haven't been privy to any other ideas around maybe nutritional self-care, for example, or maybe moving our bodies from a place of um, attunement and joy and, I don't know, strength or flexibility or something rather than a doing to my body or changing my body or that, you know, awful word, burning. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's, I think there's also a big component of unlearning all of the unlearning. diets that we all get from all these like magazines and books and we've all seen five billion bits of nutrition advice that like can we just stop seeing everywhere because it's conflicting and inaccurate and so so unhelpful and it's it's a lot to undo and sometimes it's just overwhelming to even hold all that little bits of information in your head absolutely I th and I think the other thing that is really important for dietitians and health professionals to really come to terms with is that this conversation is never going to be an easy one and it's never going to be a comfortable one so we better we better get ready to be uncomfortable because it I, I don't think I have ever had somebody come to me and just go oh thank you so much I really appreciate that okay so yes I'm going to do that and, and tell me more I mean it doesn't doesn't unfold like that you'll get maybe confusion some reluctance um, some a lot of sadness I often find um, you you will often get some relief I find in there too like it's not like everybody's mad and sad and upset and right that's it I'm never coming back that's not how it pans out there's always some well most often there's some relief in there like oh my goodness there is another way that I can develop a relationship with food that is joyful and that is peaceful and easeful and all those full words <laughs> um, <laughs> but that we better get ready to be uncomfortable because it's not usually a smooth ride as we dig ourselves out of diet culture I think one of the, the phrases I hear a lot from clients is somewhere along the lines of that sounds great but I don't think I can do it or I don't think that applies to me because of endless reasons, you know, and it's always like, yeah, intuitive eating sounds awesome. Like I, or body acceptance sounds great. I would love to feel neutral about my body. I would love to be able to eat what I want. But if I do it, if I do it now, this is what will happen mm -hmm. or this is, is impossible in where I am now. And that's an uncomfortable place to sit. Mm -hmm. And yes, we have to sit with our own discomfort in that and our, our clients just come with that and our, our, their traumas as well. Like we all, so many people, you know, whether you're working in eating disorders or not, no matter what area of the field you're working in, you're going to be sitting with people's trauma and your own, which will be triggered by these things. Too. Oh my God. And yeah. It's hard to sit with those things sometimes. And I think we all need more training in that because in the same, I, I am a relatively new dietitian in this scheme of things. I graduated in 2015 and I had one counseling class. Um, and it was optional, I think. Optional. Um, oh my god. It was optional. It was like this class, this counseling class, or this other nutrition class, or something. And yeah, we touched on like the basics of Jungian, you know, thought and 
motivational interviewing. <laughs> That's about as far as we got. And we need to all be able to give trauma-informed care. Oh my God, yeah. And it's just not really provided for, for dietitians. That training is not like super easily accessible, which is awful. Yes. I think one of the one of the um, aspects of this conversation that dietitians easily kind of um, misunderstand, and it's a, it's a very understandable misunderstanding, is that when we hear the word trauma-informed, we tend to go down the rabbit hole of thinking that people are going to be talking to us about their trauma experiences, and that's not what trauma-informed care is. Trauma-informed care means having an understanding of the impact of trauma on biological systems, on our psychology, on our relationships, um, on the way that we show up in the world. It doesn't mean that then somebody's going to tell you actually about their trauma experience. In fact, that belongs in therapy with somebody who is trauma focused, somebody who if the person wants to um, develop an understanding of their trauma and maybe move beyond their trauma in life or um however somebody seeks to understand um, having a, a meaningful life alongside a trauma experience and that belongs in therapy but trauma-informed work is just is it's a fairly foundational understanding of how trauma impacts the way that we develop relationships with food eating in our body short and long term is that would you say that's roughly on track oh I think so yeah um I love the um, the broad thinking of trauma-informed care as once I kind of saw how many professions can fit under trauma-informed care I was like oh like it started to click which is you know yoga teachers massage therapists estheticians doctors nurses you know anyone who works with people ever teachers you know anyone who works directly with people can be can, can practice trauma-informed care and that's where the root of the, the the definition of it lies is it's how can we hold space for this and, and realize that people are going to have problems like things are not going to be super straightforward and things bleed into everything else just because you have this trauma in your life doesn't mean it's you know nicely portioned and you know contained to this one little area of your brain it's touching everything and we hold space for that and know that we're also going to be triggered ourselves and we're probably going to screw up sometimes and trigger somebody else on accident, which happens. And how can we hold that space? Yeah. 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 That's so, that's beautifully said. Thank you. Beautifully <laughs> said. Yeah. One, um, one question I have for you is I'm wondering your thoughts on how particularly smaller bodied dietitians can have effective and meaningful conversations with fat clients. And when I use the word fat, I'm using it as a neutral descriptor of body size. I just want to, I know I say that often on this podcast. I just want to reiterate it. Um, and um, how we can have these conversations in ways which honours people's experiences and that we can be alongside um, and be truly, truly empathic when our larger bodied clients say, but I can't continue to be in this body. I can't continue to live my life in this body. Please help me change this body. Um, you know, I particularly, 
the reason I particularly want to emphasize that is because this is a I don't think it's a dilemma. I actually think it's a, a, it brings up a lot of discomfort for smaller body dietitians. How can I have these conversations? Because I want to, but without um, dismissing or invalidating or, um, you know, I just want, I want to be effective. I want to help people. Um, so, you know, with, with that particular kind of um, dynamic in mind, what, what are your thoughts? on That was a long question. Sorry. <laughs> Let me get my dog to go. Benji, go get him. Go get him. There we go. <laughs> prompt him to leave the room. Um, <laughs> oh, good. No, I, um, that's such an important question and it is uncomfortable. I think this, this can, is also one of those things that we can bleed over into every aspect of privilege that you have when you're sitting yes. with someone who does not have that privilege. Um, and in this work, it's particularly obvious with body size and it's really hard to be a bigger person to be a fat person sitting across from a thin person telling you that it's okay to be in whatever body you are or eat whatever food you want because really the first thought is well of course you can of course you can do this and I think speaking from the the marginalizations that I have um there are certain ones I can't speak for which is like I'm not a person of color um one very big one um we can acknowledge our privileges um, is, is a really important thing. Like acknowledging that you are a thin person sitting across the room from someone who is not and maybe has never been in that body size or maybe was and experienced the, 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 the privilege of it and the benefits, the societal benefits of it and now no longer has that privilege. Acknowledging that you can't use your lived experience to help them through it is so important and validating I think it's very validating and I think another piece that's important is mirroring the language that they're using while also sometimes calling it into question I think especially when it comes to body size because the the normative language we use around body sizes like the uh the medical terms so saying things like overweight or obese, like I've definitely had clients come in and be like, I can't, I can't do that because I'm obese. And that's not a word I'm going to mirror back. That's not it. Well, I'll mirror it, but I'm not going to use it in regular conversation with them and refer to them as that or myself as that. I will start to break down why we use that word. Like, why are you choosing that word? Um, but if someone, if you have a client that is calling themselves fat, um, especially in a neutral descriptive way, absolutely use that word with them. But if they are not calling themselves fat at all or only using it in a derogatory way for themselves, don't call your client fat. Like using using the language they're using. If they're comfortable saying I'm plus size or I'm um, chunky or I'm thinking of all these, these ones that- Yeah, curvy like, or bigger bodied curvy, or larger yeah. or- Big boned. It's like a lot of these phrases that a lot of fat people really hate. Like. If someone calls ever calls me fluffy, it just makes me. I'm like, fluffy. No, not I that one. a thing. Okay. <laughs> I'm not an animal. <laughs> I don't have fur. And these are a lot of words that a lot of us hate, but they've been like they've been they're euphemisms and that are so culturally used that we're kind of okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, a new one is thick. You know, saying things like that. You can you can use those words with them, even if you're like, ooh, that's not one I've I've heard that people like to be called. 
um, but breaking down like why neutral word descriptors like that are, are uncomfortable um, without like forcing it on them and um, just a lot of acknowledgement and a lot of mirroring back where they're at and I think there's also a space for occasionally you might not be the right person yeah the right dietitian for that person and they might benefit from someone they identify with more um not always um just because you're with a fat client and you're a thin person does not mean that you can't work with that person or any other privilege marginalization mix however there are some people who will absolutely benefit from being with someone who's closer to their marginalizations and that's where we kind of have to hold our own pride a little bit and our own egos a little bit and be okay with like, I, I think you would benefit more from this and you know, however we would say give that referral. Um, and we'll also let ourselves miss that, that the ego breeds a little bit, but it's also okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, prioritizing our clients safety and their best interests and also their preferences like yeah you know absolutely I feel like you're so um all comfortable saying now like you have to be really comfortable with the therapists you have you have you know you really need to jive with the therapists you have um I feel really comfortable like when I'm making referrals to to for clients to therapists like do you have a preference of like especially with with, with um women people who identify as women if you have a preference of what your therapist identifies as um i have some clients who would prefer to see christian therapists and like we are super comfortable doing that for therapists mm -hmm. we are you're right but i feel like we kind of downplay ourselves a little bit in that like ah, a dietitian doesn't matter as much like yeah, it's not as big of a deal but sometimes it is like sometimes it really is I think it really is. You're talking about often very, very personal, deeply, almost intimate, really, um, topics. When you're talking about food and eating, you're getting into some pretty deep layered material here with people in lots yeah. of ways. Absolutely. And it's just, I mean, that's just something we need to be more comfortable with is, mm -hmm. you know. It's not a personal rejection. It's no. actually... It's actually who is a good um, person to align our experiences with in the service of healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, being okay with being ghosted occasionally or mm -hmm. um, referring out, you know, knowing who you can refer out to. So mm -hmm. that's really important. And not downplaying our own role in this, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's so true. So my one last question for you, if it feels okay, Amy, is that I'm curious to understand a little bit about how you kind of take care of yourself on social media when you're communicating um, and when you choose to engage or when you choose to enact the delete block button or when you choose to ignore. Um, so how do you, because that is all part of how we take care of ourselves and also how we take care of each other as well. Um, understanding that sometimes our voice is needed and sometimes our voice is not needed. And sometimes our voice might be needed, but we're going to get harmed in the process or we might harm other people in the process. So 
again, a long question. <laughs> how do you kind of make those decisions and how do you take care of yourself when you're engaging? Yeah, I think it's such, it's such a case by case situation for sure. And I am absolutely liberal with my delete and block buttons, especially for folks who don't want to learn. And there are some people that you can tell right away that you're like, okay, you're not here to learn. You're here to be a jerk and I will delete and block you. Um, I learned that lesson pretty early on and with a lot of encouragement from some other, some friends. And I am really comfortable doing that now. It's when someone is kind of listening or like the argument is important to hear where I get a little bit more iffy. I'm not sure like, if, it, if I believe block is a good idea because sometimes, whether it's me or another colleague, puts a lot of effort into a comment thread, you know, and it's like it's beautifully written and really gets the point across or even just like, yeah, look how stupid this entire thread was because this person proved themselves wrong or something. Mm. And those are the ones where I might not delete, especially if they're not actively harming someone or if the support or the um, responsive the responses are going to help protect or show people that there are responses to these things because mm -hmm. this is something I get, I've gotten from clients before, like questions I've gotten of like, how do you respond to so-and-so saying this? Or um, when I hear this phrase, how do I respond to it? And I think sometimes our social media is a way we can kind of show that. Like, it's beautiful someone, like that. Yeah. When someone says this, this is a response you can give. It's perfect. Like, please, please take this. Um, and I think that's really important. So there's definitely some play there, like choosing what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Um, I will absolutely block and delete anybody who uh, causes harm to anybody. Um, anyone who's commenting on someone else or commenting on uh, someone who's not me, I will either come down on them really hard or I will block and delete. Um, I like to try and take time to educate if I can. Mm -hmm. I definitely like to do that. And Instagram, I feel like is a lot easier for that because also if you block and delete, it's a lot easier for them to stay blocked and deleted um, with some exceptions, people who are really aggressive. Persistent. Keep, yeah, that's a good word. Persistent. <laughs> the ones you keep coming back. Um, like a bad taco. My, <laughs> Twitter is a lot harder for that. Like, because deleting it, like blocking them doesn't mm. leave comments and it stays there. And it's like, this is a lot trickier. Oh, Twitter's a bit of a nightmare. Twitter is, I tend to just disengage on Twitter when I'm done with it. Like, and I, maybe, maybe they think they won if I just disengage. But Whatever. I yeah, I don't, I don't care enough. Mm. And um, I try to let myself mull over some of the responses I have. And there are certain things that like come back. I had a really interesting Twitter exchange with, interesting, I say that very not interesting it was angering um twitter exchange with someone over uh the adele body changing situation i saw that one yes and they were these people were very not there to learn they were very there to just like one of them had a weight loss account like that was his entire account and i didn't want to go through the the, the physical effort and mental effort of blocking and deleting all these tweets so I just disengaged because I was done and it has like come back up a few times. Where I'm like, that would be a good response you could give. And I'm like, no, don't <laughs> leave it alone. Like you don't want to go back because then they're going to tweet some more. That's a perfect response <laughs> at 3.30 AM. I'm going to 
tweet three that. Three weeks later. Like <laughs> three weeks later. That's right. Dig it on up. It's so, so funny. I, Definitely had that effect. That was fairly recent. So I've definitely had that come up to me a couple times. I'm like, ooh, that would be a good response to that. I'm like, stop it. Stop responding. And like, you don't want to respond to this person. So Twitter is its own creature. And I also like to be able to reach out for people to help. Like there are, there are Facebook groups of beautiful where you can be like, hey, I don't have the spoons to deal with this person. Come help me. Um, I don't have the responses. And sometimes people will come and really help. And I also think that um, being a marginalized person and I feel everyone I've talked to who, who has this experience in the marginalized body, when they ask for help from, from the allies, um, I put air quotes around allies because some people really don't like that word, but that when you ask for help from the allies of the, of your marginalization and they come and they step in and actually help out, it's really validating because it's like, okay, you, you say you, you want to help me and you're here to help. Um, it hurts when they don't show up. That's, that's a hard one, but it is really nice sometimes to have, because some, some people also are really stuck in the, they're going to hear it better from a thinner body. They're going to hear it better from so-and-so with you know, these privileges. And those are privileges I don't, I don't have, you know, white male straight privilege is a, is a real one that I do not own. And <laughs> Someone, like someone who has that can come in and kind of take over that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's just that portion of the learning as well. Maybe it's just the, you know, if, if we think about learning being like gears of a car, maybe it's first, maybe it's the one that needs the most kind of acceleration to kind of get going. And then people are more open to learning from, for example, lived experience, like lived experience plus people with multiple marginalizations, for example. And would I, would I prefer that to be different? Hell yes. I prefer first gear to be people with lived experience and people with multiple intersecting marginalizations and people who've done the work. Mm-hmm. And also that's a, that is so much labor that is not on those people's shoulders either. So I feel like first gear kind of belongs to people who have the most space to give mm-hmm. or the most to um, uh, the most labor to kind of invest Mm-hmm. And then all future gears belong firmly to, uh, well, need to be directed towards people with lived experience so that they're not necessarily doing the labor, but they are people whose voices are being elevated and, and, and centered. Absolutely. I think one of the things that we hear a lot is people who find this work, whether it's right. clinicians or it's clients or it's just activists in general, who find the help at every size, the fat acceptance work. Um, by starting at these really like vanilla body positive things, right. you know, the defense straddlers of the, of the RD world and stuff. Right. And um, I think like, as much as I don't want to be okay with that, like as much I as know. I don't want to like, support defense straddlers, like there does need to be an entryway. And if that's it, I hope that eventually all defense, it's like, I hope the defense straddlers are a transitional phase to everybody and everybody, including the defense straddlers moves their way through. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's always true, um, especially those who find monetary gain in that fence straddling space. Which yes. Is too many people. Um, but I think that there is absolutely validity in some people need that gentle That space. To, yeah. Being thrown into to the world mm. of this like really intense social justice work can be uh, a lot sometimes. So A lot. Yeah. 
And that's where it can be really valuable to be a privileged person and step into the space. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so funny because in a podcast, obviously, it's audio only. But if people could have seen our faces as we were kind of stepping through that, there was a lot of like cringy looks and a lot of like uncertainty and a lot of like, oh, I wish it didn't kind of I wish it wasn't this way. I really wish it wasn't. And also, you know, one of the one of the greatest skills we can have is around acceptance of what is so that we can get shit done. What is our, what is our, what is our aim here? Like body liberation for Mm -hmm. all people, not just particular people, but all people. And there's a part of me that says it really matters how we get there. And then there's another part of me that goes, oh, there's some aspects of that. doesn't matter how you take that very first step. Let's just kind of get the car moving. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the car, I mean whole systems. I don't mean individual people necessarily i mean whole systems like the whole dietetic profession for example medical profession the whole uh, medical profession <laughs> for example like you know yeah. let's just get the car moving absolutely i completely agree with that like as much as it hurts to support it <sighs> it's like i know that i went through that phase where i'm sure really like, looked at my bookshelf recently and saw a book that i read when i was first introduced to not even intuitive eating but like the really low level kind of sketchy stuff. I looked at it and I'm like, Ooh, I really hope no one ever sees me reading that book. <laughs> <laughs> right. We've all been there. We, we've definitely all been there. The, the, the entry points that I had were very fence straddly, very mm-hmm. straddly. And it was only from there that I saw what I couldn't see before. And then the car started moving. So do I, I acknowledge that readily like, um, you know, reg- on the regular, definitely. Um, and do I like seeing that? No. Do I like seeing the other people? Not really. Um, is it just how change, human change works often? Yep. It is yep. often. Yep. Yeah. It definitely took me years to get to the place where it was like the waterfall into the really deep work. And then once right. I got there, I'm like, oh, this is like a never ending wealth of space to be in but it took me a while to even get to the space where I fell into it really fast you know that was a slow roll of unstraddly stuff you know whether it was professionally or um personally and real glad I got out of that space and god I hear you I hear you so much goodness yeah Mm -hmm. Amy this has been the most enormous pleasure Thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time, with your energy, with your wisdom, with your experience. It's just been such a rich and wonderful conversation. I so appreciate you joining me. Of course. I'm so, this is a really good conversation. I'm glad we finally got to do this. Yeah. So um, where can people find you? Because I really recommend people do follow you on social media. You have, you show fantastic leadership when it comes to communication. And um, I, I would just get on it. Get on, don't get on, Amy, just get, get on. So, oh, oh, I've completely messed that one up. You know, where can people find you, Amy? Um, my Instagram is Amy underscore RD. It's A-M-E-E underscore RD. Um, my Twitter handle, which Twitter is, a, <laughs> we just talked about that, is Amy Severson. Um, it's my name. My website is prospernutritionandwellness.com. And yeah, keep an eye out for 
for, for a book. Um, I also have an online course in the mix somewhere in there. And, oh my goodness. Yeah, slow rolling too. Two people with ADHD are trying to write that course, so we're going a little slow now. These spaces, you'll you'll hear more about these other things too. That is so cool. I am so excited for these projects. It's really, it's really awesome. Me too. Yeah. yeah, great. Thanks again so much, Amy. I really look forward to hopefully reconnecting in person sometime in the next few years. Maybe I don't know. Oh, everything's a little extended now, but I know. <laughs> I know. So wonderful to connect, and thank you so much again. Thank you. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.